presents High Tech Sunday. On today's episode of High Tech Sunday, our hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean, sit down with Worldwide Technologies Chief Technology Advisor for the Public Sector, Rick Pina, for our conversation on leveling up. Up first is Corning Incorporated's Manager of Technical Talent Pipelining, Dr. Mark Vaughn. Next is Career Communication Group's Senior Technology Editor, Lango Dean. Finally, our esteemed guest, Rick Pina. In his role as CTA for the public sector, Pina and his team engages with customers on strategy, innovation, and overall transformation, focused on achieving tangible, operational, and business outcomes at enterprise scale. Pina also leads a nonprofit he co-founded with his wife, RIP Ministries, which is dedicated to serving the underprivileged with a special emphasis in the Caribbean. And without further delay, High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lingo Dean. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. And uh, let me add my welcome to our listening audience today as we are here for another episode of High Tech Sunday. It has really been an awesome, awesome experience for nearly a year now that we've had the occasion to carve out time to actually have a conversation with some hugely, hugely esteemed and interesting guests. And today is no exception. We are so happy to have the opportunity to uh, speak with Mr. Rick Pena today. Good afternoon, Mr. Pena. How's it going? Uh, Going very well. Thank you very much, Dr. Vaughn. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. And we are going to cover a lot of ground today. So let's just jump right into it. I have the great pleasure of really doing kind of the elevator uh, moments uh, as we open each of the broadcasts. And that is to uh, have the opportunity, if you will, to get on that elevator and and, uh, go up to the top floor and on the way, just learn a little bit about each of our guests. And so we'd like to do that with you right off the bat. So can you talk to us a little bit about the beginnings of your journey. What is it that caused you, do you think, to kind of set out on the path that you are on? What were your inspirations? What were the seeds uh, that really led to really how you wound up where you are today? Well, uh, I would first uh, have to say, and, and, I, and I do appreciate, uh, let me just say, High Tech Sunday, uh, one being technology, and then two, uh, this having a faith slant as well, right? So these are like the two big things in my life are technology and my faith. So I mean, so it's going to be an easy conversation for me. Uh, so that said, I would I would have to start off by saying it's the grace of God, right? So like like uh, Paul said, you know, I am who I am by the grace of God. So whatever I am, <laughs> whatever I'm not, is by God's unearned and amazing grace. But but from a seeds perspective. I would say that my mother, my mother grew up uh, in the Dominican Republic, in La Vega, Dominican Republic, in the country. Uh, it wasn't that they, they lacked anything, but, but my family really wasn't of means or anything like that. Uh, so my mother was one of nine children, and she uh, had an eighth grade education, and she had the most education 
of all of her siblings, right? So the most education, and she made it to the eighth grade. Uh, my mother uh, and one of her cousins uh, would, would dream, and they grew up with no running water, no electricity, uh, dream of going to New York one day. And uh, so she would tell people that she was going to New York City, and people laughed uh, about her, uh, at her and stuff like that. But she made it. She made it to, to New York City in 1970, by the grace of God. And I was born a couple of years later. And so what I saw in my mother and, um, and my sister, uh, my mother raised my sister and I as a single parent, but my sister very astutely years later wrote a paper in high school. When she was in high school, I was already in the army, but um, I came home to visit New York and I read this paper, an essay that my sister wrote as a teenager and it blew me away. And the whole thesis, her premise was that the children of immigrant parents do better in the United States because they see hope in their parents. No matter what you know, conditions they have or whatever, uh, whatever challenges or obstacles they're facing, um, because their parents are immigrants, they will always see hope. No matter how bad people think we had it in Brooklyn, it was still better than where my mother came from in the Dominican Republic. So, so those seeds of hope, uh, my mother reminded me many times that we came to this country to do something. Uh, so she would tell me, hey, you have to do something. Um, and uh, where I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, the, the motivation to do right was scarce. The opportunities to do wrong was plenteous. Uh, and so my mother, I saw something in my mother. So if you talk about seeds, the seeds that were sown in my life from an early age, early stage, uh, were seeds that I received from my mother, obviously by the grace of God. But my mother instilled something in me that we came to this country to do something, to, to get a better life. Uh, and because of that, I stayed away from the many opportunities uh, to do things that would have taken me down the wrong path. I love that intro. And I'm telling you, as you were uh, speaking about uh, your being a man of faith, I was like, oh, we're, we're going to go in. It's, it's going to be Sunday for sure. Uh, but it really is cool to hear you speak about those seeds that were implanted in you from an early age and actually uh, were, were instilled uh, in your mom as part of kind of the mission to America, if you will. Uh, and so uh, I often, as I'm listening to our guests, I'm, I'm thinking about headlines. What is it that is the capture? Uh, and you said something repeatedly and powerfully. You said your mom reminded you and you often think about we're here to do something. We're here to do something good. And then you said that the opportunities, the opportunities uh, to do things that weren't good were plentiful. The motivation to do right was scarce. And so by the grace of God, you actually landed on, I'm gonna do what's right. So when you, when you think about that as kind of the the backdrop for you. What is it that you would say really is your passion and where did it come from? So my passion, uh, quite honestly, is to make the most of the one life that we get, right? So I, uh, I only have one life just like we all only have one life. And so my passion, my burning desire uh, is to get out of me everything that I believe God deposited in me from the foundations of the world. And so uh, I only, since we only get one chance at this thing, uh, people ask my wife and I all the time, why do you guys do so many things? 
if I'm led, if I believe that it is the will of God that I'm doing X or Y or Z, um, I believe that whatever God gives you the grace to do, uh, you know, whatever he expects you to do, he equips you to do, but then whatever he equips you to do, he expects you to do. And so from that perspective, um, since I only get one chance at life, I want to do whatever it is that I believe that I'm called to do. And then if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it with all my might. <laughs> so I've, I've always been that way. Uh, I've always been very passionate. Uh, if something is worth doing, is worth doing right and is worth doing all the way. And so if I'm not going to put my heart in, into it, I would rather just not do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I believe, you know, obviously my mother instilled lots of things in me, me seeing her have a, a, this, this passion and this hope for other people. And so we grew up, I grew up, I thought, I thought I grew up poor because we grew up on welfare, on food stamps, on Medicaid and, you know, government assistance and government cheese and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, um, and then, but we will go to the Dominican Republic uh, at least once a year. And my mother in, in New York would save up these pennies. And, um, and, and there's not much you could do in New York with pennies, but in, in the Dominican Republic, I guess you could. So she would save up this jar of pennies and she would take it. And then another thing that I realized every time we went to the Dominican Republic is that we went with a, a suitcase full of clothes and then we came back with no clothes. And so she gave everything away and she would just tell my cousins and family members when we got there, hey, don't take his clothes while we're here. We're gonna be here for seven days, 10 days, whatever. When we leave, we'll give the clothes away, but please don't take his clothes while we're here. And literally we would go with clothes and come back with no clothes. I remember going down to the river to take a bath, you know, no running water, no electricity, that type of thing. Uh, so the context, it was this weird dichotomy of in the Dominican Republic, my family was like, wow, dude, you're rich. You live in New York. And in New York, we were poor. <laughs> At least I thought we were poor, you know, from the standards of, of this country. My wife, who actually grew up with no running water, no electricity in Dominica, reminds me that I was not poor because poor in the United States is not really poor, like compared to other countries. Um, so I guess, you know, just this whole thing of, hey, look, we, we came, my mom came to this country. We need to do something with the one opportunity. Another thing, Dr. Vaughn, is that I'm the first of my family born in the United States. So that means that I'm the first of my entire family, of my generation, uh, to be born as a U.S. citizen, a blue passport, uh, and to know English. <laughs> so like that, that last statement, you know English, that, that doesn't mean much to most Americans. But, but where I grew up, like, and so I lived in a building, an apartment building, I was like the only kid that knew English, right? So, so like people would stop by and knock on the door and go, come to my mother and say, hey, well, I got this mail can your son read the mail? Like, I mean, I literally had to translate, read people's mail, tell them, you know, what the government was telling them to do. You have to show up here, there. And because I knew English, my family would say, dude, you know English, you have to do something. You have to do something with your life. You can't work in a, in a I've been working since I was 13, but they would say like, you can't just stay working in a bodega or a cab driver or in a factory. You have to do something because you know English. Like the fact that I knew English was like, no, that sets you on another level. And I, of course, most Americans don't think that way, but I'm just saying this is the immigrant story and this is the immigrant reality that because I'm the first of my family born in this country, my family put all this pressure on me that was like, you have to do something, but I didn't have any example. I didn't know what I was gonna do with my life. I just really uh, wanted to do something, obviously. And then uh, one last thing I'll say about this um, is, and I don't know why this was done. What I'm about to say is actually terrible. Uh, what was said to me in elementary school, but. I was at PS 149 on Sutter Avenue in East New York, Brooklyn. And I remember some teachers coming in and they quoted statistics to us, right? 
So they quoted statistics to us, and everybody in my school was either uh, black or Hispanic. And so they said, hey, look, you know, black and brown children in East New York, Brooklyn, X percentage of you as male, especially to the boys, X percentage of you will be dead or in jail by the time you turn 18. So, um, so by the time you turn 18, the chances are high that you're either going to be dead or in jail. And I remember being in the element, I don't know, this is like third or fourth grade. Um, that impacted me in a significant way uh, to where I remember many times on a Saturday morning as I was getting up early and waiting for my friends to come outside so we could play tag or football or something. Uh, I remember sitting on a stoop and only people from the Northeast know what a stoop is, but uh, sitting on a stoop and um, a couple of times, you know, almost crying or in tears. And I would just say, man, I just hope I'm alive. You know, when I'm 18, I just got to get out of here. And so fast forward, I joined the army when I was 17, I turned 18 in basic training. And the day that I turned 18, I was in, in basic training. Of course, I didn't tell anybody because they would have messed with me. Uh, but I got up that morning before everyone else. And I went into the bathroom and I cried uncontrollably, not because I had accomplished anything, but simply because I was alive at 18. I got out of New York. I, I didn't go to jail. I never took drugs. I never sold drugs. I got out and I was 18 and I was still alive. And I had a chance. I had a chance at life. So that's like, you know, just, uh, I don't know why somebody would say that to a child, but that was said to me. And obviously it had a traumatic impact on me at a very young age. Wow, 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 wow. I'm telling you, uh, just so, so, uh, again, this is, this is Sunday. So what we just heard was a testimony <laughs> on high tech Sunday. Um, you said, uh, the, the last headline was I'm alive. I'm still here. And I think that uh, a lot of us have perhaps thought differently about something that simple over the course of the last 15 months. We've all been uh, dealing with a reality that was unknown to us unless we were, you know, 100 years old and, and somehow recalled the last pandemic. And so I think that there is a renewed appreciation for just being alive. Uh, but you were talking about how how poverty, if you will, is relative. Uh, how, uh, as you were in New York, knowing that for United States, uh, you were certainly experiencing poverty, but then back home, uh, you had it going on. Uh, when you started talking about the government cheese, listen, uh, you, you hit me where I live, um, because I remember that well. And even though, uh, you know, we, we go and, and get the cheese out the grocery store these days, there's still no cheese like that government cheese, okay? But I think that it's really important for all of us to understand as we're as we are listening to you and remembering how you were introduced uh, that there is a story behind the glory, if you will. Uh, and so let, let's let's jump into that a little bit. You have uh, actually podcast uh, that I wanted to talk to you about for just a moment. And and on the podcast, it's a, a series that you've had called Leveling Up. And uh, in our conversation with you today, um, we've got that same theme, if you will, uh, as we are talking to and sharing with you, uh, sharing you with the audience. And so uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, how it is that when you were going through what you went through in your childhood 
and then into your young adulthood. What was it that really caused you uh, to be shaped into uh, the man that you are today? What was the motivation? You talked about uh, being a, a man of faith. You talked about the seeds that were planted uh, by your mother. You talked about just being grateful to make it to 18. But what were the motivations that really um, uh, were most meaningful to you uh, that stand out to you as you've been on uh, this journey, if you will? Yeah, um, great question, uh, Dr. Mon. I will say that going back to my mother, I have to go back to my mother because we're still kind of like in the in the pre-army, my, you know, uh, days from the time I was born to the time I was 17, I was with my mother. So um, from that perspective, I would say that uh, what I saw in my mother, my mother was is still to this day very well respected. My mother taught me things that a lot of people don't talk about today. Um, she she taught me things like dignity, uh, respect, uh, how your yes needs to be yes. You know, your amen needs to be amen. If you said uh, you're going to show up at, 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 you know, if you give your word, you have to fulfill your word, that type of thing. Uh, I, I give you an example of, of what I mean. I remember uh, now uh, cut up jeans are back in style. But, um, but back when I was, when I was a kid, you know, uh, cut up jeans came out and everybody was cutting up their jeans and that kind of thing. And, uh, and we had a small apartment in Brooklyn. And, um, I remember taking my favorite jeans, uh, and I went into my room and I spent time on these jeans and I cut them up and everything. And, and I frayed them. And, you know, I, I, I like put a lot of energy and effort. The, and we had a small apartment. I mean, like my apartment, where we all live, my whole family lived, is smaller than my kitchen right now. And so, I mean, so we had a small apartment, but my mother was always in the kitchen. And so for me to get out of the bedroom, for me to go outside, I had to pass by the kitchen. My mother was always in the kitchen. So I put on these, these jeans, cut up jeans. I had, a, you know, I was looking good as far as I thought I was. And as I was going out, my mother, my mother looked at me and said, where are you going? I said, I'm going outside. She said, uh, now with those pants. I said, well, why not? She said, look, uh, she said this in Spanish, but she said, she said, look, if you could look stupid just for yourself, then I would let you look stupid. Right. But the problem is that when you go outside, you represent me. Everybody knows you're my son. And so if you go out the outside looking stupid, you're going to make me look stupid. So, no, you're not going to wear those pants. Take them off so I could throw them away. And literally, she made me take them off and she threw them in the trash. But her point was, you represent me. Right. You represent me. I've been working since I was 13. I remember I got my first job working at a cash register in the bodega. Now, to, to handle cash, especially as a young kid, that's not something they let everybody do. But I didn't get the job because it was me. I got the job because I was my mother's son, because my mother had a name, she had a reputation, and because she was a woman of honor and dignity and integrity and respect. And she told me, listen, I would rather we eat dirt than for you to bring $1 of drug money into this house, um, because I had a lot of friends that were selling drugs. I, I worked uh, at the age of 13. I worked six days a week, 12 hours a day over the summer, 72 hours a week for $150 a week. Um, and, I, and I knew kids that were making $10,000 a week. Uh, and, but I worked for $150 a week and then I worked at a restaurant. And then, you know, I, I just did my thing. My mother taught me dignity, honor, respect to do what's right because it's right and do it right every time. Um, and, and, and also she taught me that we, you know, we're Dominican. And so, we're, hey, look, you're, you're in this country. You're, you're from here. You live here, but you're not from here. And so, you know, we work. We're, we work hard. We're honest people, hardworking, industrious. And so I have no problem working. 
uh, I've been, I, I don't have any problem, you know, having a work ethic. Uh, that's one of the things I kind of pride myself in. Uh, but really, these are things that I was taught at a very young age uh, that, that I, ne I just needed to do what was right because it's right and then do it right every time. Wow. Do what is right because it's right and do it every time. Uh, the headlines are are awesome. Uh, if I could, if I could just um, make a historical uh, note for uh, some of our younger viewers, um, you know how you get the jeans today and they're already cut up. Uh, Mr. Mr. Pena is talking about he had to do that himself. Uh, so that's what he means when uh, the cut up jeans were coming out. They weren't in the stores yet. Uh, so now you pay good money to do what he did in his bedroom. And, and they still got thrown out. <laughs> but um, you mentioned earlier, you, you're the um, son of immigrants, first to be born in the United States, in your family, only person kind of in the building, not just your family, um, who spoke English, uh, single parent, home. So it clearly wasn't necessarily an easy life for you as you were growing up. How would you encourage young people today who may be experiencing adversities to actually overcome them? What is it that really allowed you to, to again, you said you, you chose to go uh, in, in a, a different direction than a lot of what you were seeing. How, do you, how would you encourage other young people today? Because uh, it's rough still for a lot of folks. Yes, uh, Dr. Vaughn. Uh, honestly, sometimes I think back, uh, and I'm pretty proud of my 13-year-old, 15-year-old, 17-year-old self, uh, because I had a lot of opportunities to do you know, bad things. And so uh, um, I would just say that no matter where you, you know, no matter what environment you find yourself in, first of all, if, if you're in the United States, you have opportunity. Let's, let's get that out of the way. If you're in the United States, you have opportunity. This is the land of opportunity. So only in the United States can somebody like me kind of, uh, uh, you know, do some of the things that I'm doing and my wife as well. So my wife came to this country when she was 20 years old. So I am a son of immigrants, married to an immigrant. My wife had to raise her right hand and become a U.S. citizen. And uh, my wife, uh, she grad, I mean, uh, she retired from the military. Uh, she was running the most advanced robotic surgery department in the DOD when she did. And she runs her own company now. And so only in America can that happen, right? So let's be clear that you, the United States of America, I know that the news will tell you that there are a lot of bad things going on in this country, but this country is still the symbol of hope for most of the free world. So let's get that out of the way. So if you're in the United States, you have opportunity. So you have a choice. Like you get to decide if you are going to go down the, the easy path that may lead to you know, bad things or the harder path. I'm, I would just tell you that it may take time. Here's another thing, Dr. Vaughn, that a lot of young people, I have four children, and uh, I talk to my kids about this all the time, but a lot of young people today don't want to talk about delayed gratification. Uh, they don't want to talk about like sowing seeds today for you know what you're going to get is reaping a harvest in the future. Uh, they don't want to they don't want to talk about something like paying your dues and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, these things do pay off. So just do what's right. Um, take the hard right instead of the easy wrong. Uh, and if you just stay true to yourself, true to your upbringing, 
and uh, and don't do things that are go that you know, like in your heart, are wrong. Then at the end of the day, hard work is going to pay off, especially in this country, and especially with all of the efforts around diversity and inclusion, and obviously this conversation that we're having here. Uh, so so really, uh, there there are very many places on this planet where you could work hard and still not make it. But in the United States, I think that you have the best opportunity uh, to get out of poverty, uh, to get out of the conditions that you are in if you just do it the right way. Don't, don't, don't try to do it the wrong way because you know that you're going to reap a harvest on that and it will not be something that will be beneficial to you or your children. Amen to that. And, and it's Sunday. I got to remember people so I can say amen and it's in order. Uh, but, but seriously, um, uh, the, the, there's so much tr simple truth in that. You said choose the hard right rather than the easy wrong. And I think that those are, are such wise words to live by at whatever age, whatever stage you find yourself in. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that Mrs. Rick uh, is uh, a retired military person, uh, so we certainly thank both of you for your service, but you went into uh, the military young, young, like, like you said, 17. Um, so what, what made you decide to go into the military? What made you decide to go into the Army? And how did that shape the rest of your journey as you moved into your career later on? Yeah, so funny story on that, right? So, um, uh, so I, I was in, in elementary school, I was, I was always gifted in school as it relates to academically, right? So, so by the grace of God, I'm not one of those people that really had to study hard to get A's or straight A's or anything like that. Um, so I was always gifted. I was always one of the smartest uh, kids in my class. And because of that, when I was in fifth grade, uh, the, the school came to my mother and, and said, hey, uh, your child is really, he's bored in class. And so either he can skip to the seventh grade or we could put him in a school for the gifted and talented. And so my mom opted to put me in a school for the gifted and talented. Uh, and I lived in East New York, Brooklyn, but I had to take two public New York City public transportation buses, not yellow buses, like public buses with grown folks. And I'm 11 years old. And so I, I took the bus, took two buses down to Wilson and Green, uh, downtown Brooklyn. And um, so brand new school, I get there. And like Monday, I'm good to go. I was like, wow, there's smart kids in this school. Like for the first time, I felt challenged. Tuesday was awesome. Wednesday was awesome. But I got one pair of sneakers every year. Uh, my mom didn't have a lot of money. And so she, she bought me one pair of sneakers every year. And then, I, of course, I, I took care of those sneakers. And so that year, I was 11 years old. I had, my mother paid $23 for some blue and white suede Adidas. And, uh, and I don't know, I, for the people that are from Brooklyn, you know, I took care of those. I mean, like I cleaned them out of suede brush and I ironed the laces. I had the fat laces, everything. It was nice. So I had blue and white suede Adidas. So the first Thursday of school, of the school year, I'm getting out of school. I get on the bus. I'm at the back of the bus. I'm sitting down. And about six or seven guys get on. And there's a, there's a method to this. This is going to lead to why I left New York. So six or seven teenagers get on the bus. And they come to the back of the bus and they're looking around. And uh, one of them looks at me and says something that if you're from New York, you never want to hear. And that was, hey, shorty, what's your size? 
<laughs> what's your size means that you're about to get robbed for your shoes. And so, so I was like, you know, I, my New York mode kicked in. I was like, yo, shorty, what's your size? I was like, I don't know. And so I tried to stand up and he pushed me down. Now, of course, I'm 11. He's like 17. He tried to push me down. And, but my New York mode, like, I'm like, what? What you doing? Like, you know, and I'm trying to get all rowdy and stuff. And he opens up his jacket and he had a 357 Magnum in his waist. And uh, I see the gun. Now, I am terrified at this point. Now, but on the outside, I have to kind of put up the facade. So I said, what? I'm supposed to be scared? Now, on the, on the inside, like, I'm, I'm terrified. I try to get up again. He pushes me down. He pulls out a gun and put the gun to my head. I'm 11 years old. And he put the 357 Magnum to my head. And at that point, I just shut down. I started shaking. I was shaking so bad that my, my sneakers, which were loose, they were, you know, fat laces, that somebody else, one of his friends came to take my sneakers off. My, my feet were shaking so bad that it was hard for him to take them off. So anyway, he took them off. I made it home. I was crying. I told my mom I got robbed. And I, and I was thinking, where's my mom going to come up with another $23? That's all I was thinking about was the $23, which I know she didn't have. So fast forward, there's a lot that went on in, in, into that. But of course, my mom the next day went to the school, took me out of that school and put me back in the hood. Put me back in my school in the hood. And I stayed. I went to, I went to middle school in the hood, IS-292. I, I was accepted in New York City. Um, academically, you get accepted into different high schools. I was accepted in every high school in the city, but I, I didn't go. I didn't go to any of them. I went to the one of the worst, Thomas Jefferson High School, J-E, they called it Jeff. They called it Jeff's Education for Fools, J-E-F-F. -F. That's where I opted to go because it was two blocks from my house. And as bad as it was, it was in my neighborhood. So I knew, you know, it was bad. It was a hood, but it was my neighborhood. So I stayed. Um, so I said all that to say, at Jeff, of course, I did very well. One of the smartest kids. I had an academic scholarship to go to college, but for me to go to college, I would have to take the train. Now, I never left my neighborhood to go anywhere, like publicly, you know, as far as school, after I got robbed when I was 11. And the only time I ever got robbed was when I left my neighborhood. So for me to take the train every day for four years was like playing Russian roulette with your life back then. So I don't know if you know anything about East New York or New York City in the 70s and 80s, but it's nothing like it is today. I mean, it was literally like playing Russian roulette with your life. And so um, this is how I joined the Army. One of, uh, I, my mom moved to the Dominican Republic uh, when I was, when I was uh, about to start my junior year of high school. So I did the 11th grade, uh, my junior year of high school, I actually went to school in the Dominican Republic. That was, that was a challenge because I had to go to school in Spanish. And so... I speak Spanish fluently, but I had never read it or anything. And so I did it. I did well. Actually, I did very well by the grace of God. And then they tell me that if I graduate in the Dominican Republic, that I would not, it, it wouldn't count. Even though that school was a great school, it wouldn't count in the U.S. I would have to come back and take the GED. Well, I didn't want to do that. So I told my mom, hey, senior year of high school, I'm going to go back to New York. I'm going to go back and work. I'm going to live with my cousins. I, I need to graduate in the U.S. She was like, okay, fine. So I went back and I, and I lived with my cousins and I took the, you know, I worked and I took the bus to, to school and everything. And so as I was there, I'm living with one of my cousins and my cousin Robert says, hey man, um, he was a cab driver at the time trying to learn, he could barely knew English and he's trying to figure out like how to be a cab driver, how to learn the roads and, you know, communicate with, with his uh, fares. Uh, and so I would help him out with English. He said, hey, in the Dominican Republic, I was going to join the army. I was in, a, uh, uh, in a military academy. 
can you see if I could join the army? And that day I just happened to be off from work. Uh, I pick up the phone and I called 411. For those of you that don't remember, this is pre-Google. Uh, there's a, something called 411 where you actually had to call information. So I called information, got the number for the nearest recruiter and um, called the recruiter. I said, hey, I have a cousin that wants to join the army. Of course, the recruiter perked up. I said, yeah, but he doesn't know English. Uh, is, that a, is that a problem? And he said, yeah, it's a problem. He, he has to take a test, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, well, all right, cool. I'm about to hang up. He's like, whoa, 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 before you hang up, you know English. I said, yeah, I know English, but I'm not joining the army. You can forget that. And he was like, no, 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 come on. Let me talk to you for a minute. Uh, are you free? I could come pick you up. I can buy you something to eat. And I was off. It just so happens that I, I was off that day. So uh, he came, he picked me up. He took me to McDonald's. This guy bought me with a Big Mac meal. He got me a Big Mac meal. We went across the street. I took a little pretest on, uh, on, on the computer. They saw that I did very well. He pulls out a book. I mean, Dr. Vaughn, I mean, this thick book. He slams it on the table. He says, these are all the jobs in the Army. You're so smart. You can do any job you want to do. And uh, I was like, oh, really? And so one thing led to another. I'll, I'll make a long story short. Um, I called my mother from there and I said, yeah, I'm thinking about joining the army. I just wanted to get out of New York City. And I remember that, you know, 18 years old, I just want to be alive. Um, and so I got the opportunity. Uh, by the grace of God, I picked technology. It was communications at the time, telecommunications. Um, my mom tried to keep me safe. So she had bought me an Atari 2600. I know that I'm dating myself. Uh, but for those people that remember an Atari 2600. And then I got a Commodore VIC-20 when I was in seventh grade. And so that Commodore VIC-20, I started programming in DOS. Um, I took computer classes in high school. I was one of the only people that had a computer at home. And so um, I kind of liked this stuff. And I got into telecommunications voice comms in 1990 at the age of 17. Uh, and the rest is history. Wow. I, I know I keep saying wow, but that that's just like the right word uh, for uh, what you've been sharing. I, I'm I know that everyone has been riveted just hearing uh, how it is that at age 11, uh, your your trauma actually uh, led to uh, a a path that ultimately uh, influenced the rest of your life, uh, and and we need to be able to uh, get a visual somehow of of those pumas, okay? Because um, uh, I I'm feeling you there, and and it would have been tough to give those up, but uh, like you said, uh, at at a point you, you know you know uh, what was coming, but when you think about how it is that all of that came about. You, you said earlier, uh, and again, it's something that can't be downplayed. You said it was the grace of God um, uh, that was really underscoring your life. And, and that certainly is true, even, even uh, to the point where you were calling for your cousin and you wound up uh, with the uh, invitation. I got to tell you, uh, when I was a kid, uh, a Big Mac meal, I would have signed up for anything. Um, uh, so I, I, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. But um, we, we thank God that it worked out uh, the way that it did. Uh, we just got a few minutes left in this segment. Uh, so I want to ask you about your work, your role at Worldwide Technology. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, uh, how'd you wind up there and what do you do? Thank you. So um, 
I was in the army, obviously, for 25 years. And, and by the grace of God, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about that, but I, uh, I retired as the army chief technology officer. So, uh, and really, you know, that, that's, that's, that was my dream job. And so um, I'm, I'm working at the highest level of the army and basically corporate headquarters in the, in the Pentagon. And, um, and I get to work at enterprise scale, at the army scale. So I worked for the CIO and I was the CTO and I dealt with industry on a daily basis. And so as I was communicating the army uh, mission and vision and gaps and opportunities to industry, um, I got to meet with industry pretty much. Uh, I had like Tuesdays and Thursdays were my industry days. And I met with a lot of companies and I got to explain to them what the army was doing and what we needed from technology in Silicon Valley and Boston and Austin and all of that. And conversely, they communicated to me what they did from a technology perspective. And I kind of helped marry the, the army gaps and opportunities as they emerged with evolving or emerging technology and kind of merged the two together. And so as I was doing that job, I, I, uh, I met some folks at Worldwide Technology. Uh, actually, the, the, my former boss, the CIO of the Army, uh, Lieutenant General Bob Farrell and I, we visited Worldwide Technology uh, as my last trip while I was in the Army. And, uh, and I already was talking to industry. I already had ideas as far as what I was going to do when I retired. Um, and I thought I was going to be a consultant. I thought I was going to work with my cousin. He has a small business, all of this. And I went to uh, visit Worldwide Technology and I met Dave Stewart. And Dave Stewart gave me a book that he wrote and published called Doing Business by the Good Book. And he's the founder uh, and, uh, and chairman of Worldwide Technology. So he's a believer. And uh, I had never met a, a Christian billionaire before. And so I get to talk to Dave Stewart. Uh, I'm talking to the team. Uh, there was an opportunity there. I get to talk to Worldwide Technology and I was thoroughly impressed. Uh, to the point where, um, you know, when they asked me to fly out to St. Louis to actually have a conversation on whether or not I wanted to go to Worldwide, um, I, I flew out there with every intention, Dr. Vaughn, of saying no, because I had other plans. Uh, and so I literally flew, I, had, I flew to St. Louis to say no. And I got there and uh, between the people and the culture and really God, I mean, like in my heart, I was like, I can't say no to these people. And, um, and I called my wife and I said, man, I, I didn't expect this at all. And my cousin who wanted me to go work with him, I said, Primo, this is the only, you know, the only wrinkle. It could be, let me, let me just go out here and say no to these people. And then I'll say yes to you. And he was like, all right, well, let me know how it goes. And, Cause this was like the last hurdle before I could go work with him. And, uh, and I called him from the airport and I was like, man, I'm sorry, man. I love you, man. I mean, we grew up like brothers, but I can't say no to these people. Uh, I believe God wants me at Worldwide. And that was six years ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, it's the truth. And, and so now I get to do basically the same thing I did while I was in the Army. Uh, we, and I do it for public sector. So public sector is uh, three business units. We have the whole Department of Defense and the intel intelligence community. That's one business unit. We have the federal civilian agencies. That's 400 federal civilian agencies across the federal government. That's another business unit. And then we have state, local, and education. So every state of the 50 states, all local governments, municipalities, and higher education, I get to, to take technology. And we work with everybody, which is cool. Worldwide technology works with just about every uh, manufacturer that you could think of in, in Silicon Valley, Boston, Austin, Redmond, Washington, Seattle, all of that. And uh, we can integrate technology. Uh, we, we basically focus on customer outcomes. And we work our way backwards from the outcome to the technology. We provide integrated solutions, and I love it. My two passions, and I get to talk about both today, 
our technology and my faith. That is absolutely uh, amazing. And and I know I got to toss it to Lango Dean, but really quickly, really quickly, since you, you just gave the perfect ending, you said uh, your two passions, uh, technology and your faith. Uh, can you just quickly uh, uh, give us the, the headlines around uh, the work that you do with the employee resource, resource groups and uh, you actually are able to integrate your faith into a, a daily prayer at work, can you can you just give us a, a quick snapshot of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I do a daily devotional, uh, or I have a podcast that I do every day called Today's Word. But at at, at Worldwide, when um, so I've been at Worldwide for six years, and I've been very fortunate to be able to speak at multiple prayer breakfasts and prayer events and pray and that type of thing. And when um, when COVID happened, and we also had racial unrest in the United States about eighteen months ago. Um, our chairman wanted to have a prayer call and, uh, and we do it every other week. And so I, I thankfully have been part of just about every prayer call, either I've spoken or prayed at the, at the events. Uh, but really this has helped our employees significantly around the world as it relates to their faith and also mental health. Um, so people working remote, disconnected from other people, just to have that opportunity every other week, every other Wednesday to get together as a global WWT family, and we pray and we pray one for another and we bring in speakers to speak and, and provide an encouraging and uplifting word is a tremendous blessing. And I, I get to participate in that. And then from a diversity and inclusion perspective, the company has seven employee resource groups where we really focus on every area of diversity and inclusion. And I am privileged to be able to lead the Hispanic and Latinx uh, employee resource group globally for worldwide technology. So that's, uh, there's so many things that I'm thankful for and those two for sure. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, uh, absolutely a blessing to hear you. You said something that you just don't hear. You said the chairman called for a time of prayer. I mean, and it's blessed the people worldwide in that company. Uh, I want to talk more about that. I want to talk more about your ministry, uh, but I'm going to behave uh, and hand it off to Lango Dean. And I'll be back at you in a little bit. Hey, Lango, how's it going? Hey, well, Dr. Vaughn. How about you? I'm doing great. Enjoying this conversation with Mr. Pena. You're listening to High Tech Sunday featuring... Dr. Mark Vaughn, Lango Dean, and our special guest, Chief Technology Advisor for the Public Sector at Worldwide Technology, Rick Pina. Registration for the 2021 Women of Color STEM Conference is now open. Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor. Running from October 7th through the 9th, 2021, don't miss out on the upcoming Women of Color STEM Conference. Since 1995, the Women of Color STEM Conference has been the premier forum of choice for recognizing the significant contributions by women in STEM fields. General registration opens on April 30th, 2021. Don't miss out on the opportunity to meet and learn from executives who are committed to the advancement of women in the workplace. Again, general registration opens on April 30th, 2021. We hope to see you there.
please visit www.womenofcolor.net for more information. Again, registration for the 2021 Women of Color STEM Conference is now open. So visit www.womenofcolor.net for more information. Now, back to the show. Hello, Ms. Davina. It's nice to have you on the show. I always like to make connections between um, past guests, um, the experiences they've shared, um, so that it kind of brings us all up, you know? And a um, couple of things that I kind of uh, tagged on to were, we had this guest a couple of weeks ago, and she was 17 when she joined the National Guard. And I asked her, I said to her, you know, what was the, the, you know, the best thing about joining the military when you were so young? And she said, well, I got to get a security clearance when I was 17 years old. You know, I mean, now when people talk about security clearances, then they're what, 30s and their 40s or whatever, younger now maybe. But so when you get a security clearance at 17, you have access to some really big stuff, high-end defense stuff. So um, it's important that, you know, it, I think young people listening understand the significance of having someone, people like you, who joined the military early and have gone on to have such successful IT careers. But bringing that up, coming back to my question now, which is that there aren't many Hispanics in executive positions. And if I look at the numbers, I think Hispanic Americans make up 17% of the workforce, 18, 17, 18%. Um, but they only make up 4% of company executives, right? Um, and that, that statistic is roughly equal to that of black executives and a little lower than Asian American executives. We're Asian American Heritage Month. So, so what are the leadership challenges that you see? Talk to us about what that role means to you and the impact it has on the Latino, Hispanic, Latinx community. Uh, thank you for the question, uh, Lango, for sure. I will say that one of the things, uh, I'm big on mentorship, uh, but also I, I, I do this teaching on models and mentors. Uh, so I go through the, the differences between like coaches and sponsors and mentors and models. Uh, but I, I do a whole teaching on models and mentors. So from a model's perspective, a mentor is somebody that you have a relationship with, somebody that's engaged with you, somebody you probably have their phone number uh, and you meet with them on a regular basis. They are speaking to you. You have an engagement with them. They are investing in your success. This is somebody that is already where you aspire to be, let's say, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. Uh, and someone that you deem to be worthy of emulation. Uh, but a model is somebody that you you resonate with, you connect with in some way, a lot of times just because they look like you or they sound like you or they have a last name that sounds like your name or maybe their accent sounds like your accent. And that person is is operating on a level that you would like to operate on. And maybe a model, you you may not even necessarily meet a model, like you you could see him on, online or in a book or whatever. I know that I gleaned a lot of things from Colin Powell's book just because he was a, a son of immigrant parents from the Bronx. 
uh, from Jamaica and I'm the son of immigrant parents from Brooklyn. And so, and he was in the army, I was in the army. So I read, you know, as, so I modeled several things after General Colin Powell. So from that perspective, I would just say that it is important for Hispanics and other minority groups to be represented at the most senior levels, uh, especially from a model's perspective. Young people need to be able to look up and see somebody that looks like them, that sounds like them, that, that they can connect with and resonate with in some way. And when they do, it does something on the inside that is almost hard to explain. It's almost, it, it is, it's almost intangible, right? It's, it's hard to communicate. I'll give you an example of what I'm saying. So many years ago, I was in Bosnia, I guess this is 90, 98, 99. So in 98, we go to Bosnia and I'm in Bosnia and General Larry Ellis, he, he wound up retiring as a four-star general. But at the time, General Larry Ellis was a two-star general. So I meet General Ellis. Uh, general Ellis was in the, leading the division that was leaving and I worked for the two-star in the division that was coming in. And so since I worked for my two-star and, and there had to be a handover between the two two-stars, I spent about 10 days in front of General Ellis. He got to know me, I got to know him. Uh, briefly. And then he took off. Uh, and I also saw him at church. I wound up being the pastor of the gospel service on, on Tuzla base um, in, in Bosnia. So fast forward, uh, my wife and I are back from Bosnia and we're in the commissary at Fort Hood, Texas. The commissary is a grocery store. So I'm in the grocery store and uh, General Ellis is, just happens to be in the grocery store. So he's walking down the, the aisle and he sees me, I see him. He's like, hey, chief, how you doing? So, you know, we just stopped, stopped to do the normal chit chat, uh, shake hands, that kind of thing. I was like, hey, sir, this is my wife, Isabella. My wife is, is, is a woman of color. General Ellis is African-American. Isabella looks at General Ellis and the look that I see on her face, I'm looking at her and I could tell something's going on. And she's like, almost like awestruck, like, you know, and, um, and so, you know, he says hi and they talk and he walks away and I'm like, babe, what's wrong? And she was like, babe, that's the first black general I've ever met. And I was like, okay. Like, so this whole thing with models, it didn't resonate with me because I had never seen a Hispanic in leadership. I just, honestly, I had mentors, but my mentors were either Caucasian or African-American. I literally had no Hispanic mentors. And so I, I, never, I never felt what she felt, right? And so I, I remember that, that incident though. So fast forward, I've never met a Hispanic general. I've never met a Hispanic really in leadership. Fast forward all these years, I don't know how many years later, probably 15 years later, I'm in the halls of the Pentagon and Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez walks down the hall, General Sanchez. And I see General Sanchez. And my name is, I go by Rick, but my, my government name is Ricardo. So, and I was like, excuse me, sir, you don't know me, but you know, my name is Ricardo. I start speaking to him in Spanish. He starts speaking to me in Spanish. He shakes my hand. You know, we have like a little dialogue. I don't know. It probably only lasted 30 seconds or 60 seconds, but for me, it was significant. He walks away. And when he walks away, I, immediately, I remember the commissary, the, the grocery store with my wife. I was like, wow, this is what Isabella felt like all those years ago. And so, so Lango, I have to say that that's why, like you need that, that, that spark, that inspiration. When you can see somebody that looks like you, that you connect with on a, on, on just on an internal level, right? That, that like, wow, if that person could do it, I could do it. I see a Hispanic. But if you, if you look at boardrooms and pictures and, 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 and you look at the, you know, uh, pictures of all the boards that you've seen on LinkedIn and that type of thing. If you don't see anybody that looks like you and you don't see any last name that sounds like yours, um, then it's, it may not be, 
said out loud. It may not be spoken, but the, the unspoken message is that we don't, you know, this is not your reality. And so when you get an opportunity to go into those rooms or to move up or to be a leader uh, at any level, you almost, we almost have a responsibility as minorities to, to, to take on more of a public role to ensure that somebody can see me. I want somebody that looks like me and sounds like me to see me and to be inspired in some way like General Sanchez did for me in the halls of the Pentagon. I hope I answered your question. So that is so inspiring, um, that responsibility that you talk about and just about everybody who's come on the show and people that we've spoken to, they feel they have that sense, they carry that sense of responsibility with them all the time. Um, from the moment they wake up with their families, um, to their jobs, to community, to roles they have in the community. And so I want you now to say it another way because kids today, they think, well, look, it's 55 years after the Civil Rights Act. And we have all these corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. But what does it mean for me? So when we have people like you on the show, you are able to tell young people what exactly someone like you in that position means for them tomorrow, next week, next month, and further down the line. So. Sticking now with that mentoring topic that you introduced, can you talk a little more about the importance of having a mentor? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a major topic for me. Um, literally, I just, uh, I, last week I was at Fort Gordon, Georgia, and uh, the, the, well, now retired. He was the current Army CTO until last Friday. Uh, CW5, Will Robinson, retired. And at the retirement ceremony, he talked about me being a mentor of his. And then my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, Les Cornwall, was to my right. Another one uh, of, of Will's mentors, Earl Johnson, was there. And he talked about, like, you know, the three of us and the impact we had on his life and his career. I openly talk about the people that have impacted me without question. And so a mentor is, is somebody, like I said, that, that has is almost, this is the way I explain it, Lango, is let's say if it were possible, I know it's not, but if it were possible for you to go back uh, 20 years or 30 years and have a conversation with yourself 20 years ago, could you help yourself? Of course, the answer is yes, you could help yourself because you have 20 years of experience. And so that's what a mentor is, is somebody that's already operating on that level. And let me just say this for those that may be a minority watching, um, my mentors um, were not Hispanic. And so uh, my mentors were either African-American or Caucasian. And so I would just say, listen, take mentorship however you can get it. I mean, they, they don't have to look like you. Like, uh, 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 and then when you get in that room and you get the opportunity, uh, one of the ways that I say it is that, that um, you know, your mentors, if you have a mentoring relationship and you open up yourself to the mentorship and you actually listen and you follow up and you follow through and you do your homework and, and you apply the principles and, and the examples and the lessons that they give you, um, then they, they are really going to be able to give you opportunities that, listen, uh, uh, they can open doors for you that you can never open for yourself. And when you walk into these rooms um, and, and you get that opportunity, when you first walk into the room, uh, you, you realize, hey, I'm the only person that looks like me in this room. <laughs> and so, so uh, you have a responsibility to the person that got you in the room. Uh, and at first you may feel intimidated. At first you may feel um, terrified, like scared out of your mind to say something, but you have to muster up the courage. That person that, that brought you into the room believes in you. 
And so you have to muster up the courage to say something. And then the more you're brought into that room, the more you can grow into that space. And once you grow into that space and you become comfortable and you become a known entity operating on that level, you have a responsibility to open the door and leave the door open for the next person. And, and so, yes, uh, do I live with that responsibility? Absolutely. I, I know that. Uh, but I would just say take mentorship however you can get it. Take it seriously. Listen to your mentors. Make time. You have to make time on their schedule. In most cases, they're going to be a lot busier than you are. So you work around their schedule. Take time whenever you can get it. Learn whatever you can. Pick up those nuggets along the way. Apply them to your life. And then when you get opportunities that you would not have gotten any other way, uh, make sure that your mentors know that you respect them, you honor it, you appreciate it. Honor them publicly as much as you can. And then when you get opportunities to be a mentor, pour into others the things that will point it into you. Wow, I think you gave us about 20 tips there. I, I wanted to rattle all of them off, but I'm sure I'm not gonna get all of them. Um, the few that I think that I picked up were mentors don't have to look like you. Um, listen to them, honor them, follow through, apply what you've learned from them. Um, what else did I pick up? Um, take mentors wherever you can find them. Uh, you, they don't like, I guess it's pretty much similar to what you said about mentors not having to look like you because you were a Hispanic, a young Hispanic man, and your mentors were either African American, Black, or Caucasian. So there was that cultural um, um, integration right there. Um, my last question before I turn it back to Dr. Vaughn is what has been the best advice, the best ever advice you've received from a mentor on your journey? Wow, that's a difficult question. When you said best ever advice, I was going to go to my mother, but then you said from a mentor. Um, so I would say, oh, okay. I, 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 and those that know me are going to know, I'm not going to name this person's name, but those that know me will know who I'm talking about. So um, one, uh, one of the things that one of my mentors used to say to me all the time, when I would publicly acknowledge or, or privately just thank him for opportunities, uh, because once again, you know, a mentor or a sponsor can, can open a door for you uh, favor can do more in a minute than labor can do in a lifetime. Um, so there, there are some things that, that you can get with one phone call, one text message, one email that you could work for 20 years and never get that opportunity. Uh, but I would often say to this particular person, sir, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity again, you know, for going out of your way, for making the phone call for me, for vouching for me, that kind of thing. And he would say to me, hey, Rick, look, all I can do is get you a spot on the dance floor, but you have to dance. And so uh, that's really uh, that responsibility to dance, knowing that somebody vouched for me, somebody put their name on me, knowing that that it, if going back to you know the, the 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 torn up pants, if I could just look stupid for myself, that's bad enough. But when somebody vouched for me and they put their name on me, and I show up at a new assignment and somebody made a phone call for me to get that opportunity, or somebody put me in that room, now I have additional pressure. And I have to remember that they put me on the dance floor, but I have to dance. And so, it, you know, uh, I, I have to do whatever I can do, not only to represent myself well, but to represent those that represent me, to represent those that believe in me, to represent those that put their name on me. Uh, because I know that, that people are going to remember that that's, you know, general such and such as guy, or that's, you know, such and such as guy or gal. And so um, I would just say that honor your mentors enough to where you will never uh, devalue or disrespect them by not making the most of the opportunity that they gave you. That's wonderful. And I think that sums it up because if you do that, 
you know, I hope you dance. You know, it's that old song, right? Um, thank you so much, Mr. Pina. It's been a wonderful conversation with you. I wish we had, we ran out of time even before we started, but it's okay. Um, we'll do it again some other time. You, <laughs> Over to you, Doc. Thank you. Thanks, Lango. I, I I know exactly what you mean. The time has flown by. I've still got so much uh, that I'd like to learn uh, from you, Mr. Pina, and uh, we will we'll have to uh, figure out a way to do so. But before we run out of time this time, two things uh, for me. I have been talking about, hearing about mentoring, coaching, sponsorship for over 30 years, and never have I heard mentoring defined in the way that you did. And I'm telling you now, I'll give you credit for it the first few times I use it, but then it's going to seem like I'm just the most awesome because it's going, I'm going to own it. Uh, go, if you could go back 20 years and help yourself, your younger self, that's what mentoring is all about. Uh, that, that was just amazing and so accessible. So thank you for sharing that. And then favor can do more in a minute than labor can do in a lifetime. I'm going to use that one as well. Uh, you, you heard um, that I'm a pastor. It was awesome to hear that you have been a pastor. Uh, and again, uh, you know, uh, pastors, we will, we will grab hold of a word. So that one is going to wind up in a sermon. I'll let you know when. Uh, but before we run out of time for this time, want to really quickly uh, get you to please uh, just say a little bit more about your word. You've got 2,000 episodes so far. Can you just give us a plug uh, about the podcast and then let folks know how they can uh, follow you, how they can, uh, if you have social media handles, how, how people can stay connected. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in 1997, um, the, I was, a, I was a Warren Officer One stationed in Fort Hood, Texas, and I was a young preacher. Um, I was a young licentiate, if you know what that is. Uh, so I just got mm -hmm. licensed to preach. and. Um, I've been preaching since 95, but I got licensed in 97. And in 97, um, the Lord impressed upon my heart to put his word in people's email inbox every mm. day. And so like, and I called it today's word, today's word with Rick Pena. And I said, okay, uh, back in 97, I don't know if you remember this, but not a lot of people had email. So I started, <laughs> with, I started with eight people that I knew and I just started sending them a word a little word, and I would provide a scripture, maybe say something about it. But here's my key question every day, five days a week, is so what does this mean to you today, right? What does this mean for you today? And so I'm big on turning the corner from information to application, uh, from learning to living. And so I would provide a scripture, say something about it. So what does this mean for you today? And then give some points, practical points. And um, so I started that in December of 1997 with eight people. Uh, never in a in a my wildest dreams would I imagine that 24 years later I'll still be doing it, uh, and so I've pretty much done today's word from Bosnia, from Iraq, from Kuwait, from Korea, from everywhere I've been, uh, I, and and so my my um, covenant with God was this, Doctor Vaughn, when He told me to do this, um, I I said, Lord, I'll do Your work before I do my work, right? I'll do Your work first, and then uh, since I'm taking care of Your work before I take care of my work, why don't You take care of my work? And uh, that agreement has been a pretty good agreement. It's worked out for me pretty good. And so, so, um, so for over 20, 24 years now, uh, five days a week, pretty much, I sent out today's word. About 10 years ago, I started a video version of it. 
So now it goes out to thousands of people every day all around the world via email. Then uh, I go live at 7 a.m. Um, so I'm going live at 7 a.m. and people watch me on Facebook Live, on Vimeo Live, on YouTube Live. On YouTube, it's youtube.com forward slash Rick Pina, R-I-C-K-P-I-N-A. Um, on Facebook, uh, you, you can go to facebook.com forward slash R-I-P Ministries and watch it there. Um, but anyway, I go live at 7 a.m. People all over the world are waiting for me to go live every morning. I do that and, and I do this literally before I do anything else. And so I get up in the morning, I pray, I get a word. And, uh, and one of the things that, that uh, I learned, which is why I focus on the grace of God so much, Dr. Vaughn, is that um, when it, whenever it's anything that's God's will is, is God's bill, right? So if it's God's will, it's God's bill. If, if God told you to do it, then, then he has to provide whatever he has to provide. He gives the vision, the provision is already there. So I, as, as smart as God has graced me to be, I'm not that smart. So for 24 years, five days a week, if it was me, if like I had to come up with something to say every morning, and this is not a little bit, like if you watch today's word, I've been going for about 22 minutes every morning. So it's not like a, a short thing, but I don't have to come up with this every morning because it's not my ministry, it's his ministry. So it's his will, it's his bill. Uh, so I just, all I have to do is report for work. I come down here to my office with a cup of coffee and then I'm like, okay, you know, I'm here. He gives me what to say. He, like John 14 and 10, is the father who lives to me. He gives me the words and he performs the work. Um, so I've been doing that for 24 years. Uh, it's a tremendous blessing to a lot of people. Uh, the podcast is available, not just through YouTube, but also on iTunes. You can just search for Rick Pina and you'll see today's word with Rick Pina. Or it's also called the Rick Pina podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've been doing that. It's, uh, I love it. It's part of my life. Uh, my children know that, you know, this is all they know. They, they watch me get up and do today's word first. Sometimes we talk about in the evening, we might have a family devotion and talk about whatever I taught in the morning. Uh, but it gives me a platform to teach a bunch of series. I just taught a series called Level Up uh, that took me about four and a half months. I'm putting all of that in a book. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a blessed man. Dr. Vaughn, at the end of the day, people say, well, why do you do all these things? You're going to the Dominican Republic. You're building a school there. You're building a church. You, got, you still have a job, you have kids, you got to take your kids to, you know, flag football, uh, taekwondo, and then all this stuff. Well, you only get one life. And so I'm just going to do whatever I believe the Lord is leading me to do. Uh, and I'll, I just want to die empty. I want to get out of me everything that God put in me while I'm in the land of the living. Talk about uh, the mic drop. That was a perfect ending uh, to a really great conversation. Thank you so much. Um, this has been uh, just hugely, hugely uh, enlightening and a tremendous blessing. Uh, so uh, I am sure uh, that I speak for everyone here on High Tech Sunday. Brother Pena, it has been awesome. Awesome. And we certainly appreciate uh, the opportunity to learn from you. Uh, we're going to look forward to hearing about Level Up, the book, as well as uh, getting connected to uh, today's word. So I'm going to hand it back over to Brandon Newby and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, thanks again uh, for being with us today. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. My honor. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of High Tech Sunday. Career Communication Group's High Tech Sunday looks at professional development and technology through the lens of spiritual philosophies. In a time when digital information is more critical than ever, this weekly program is produced by and for CCG's community of alumni and professionals in science, 
technology, engineering, and math fields. The community runs from national thought leaders to aspiring students, and this weekly series aims to bring a concentrated discussion around technological advancements and achievements based on universal moral principles. The one-hour podcast will be streamed every Sunday. The podcast can be accessed through the Bay of Facebook page, Women of Color Facebook page, and CCG YouTube page, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please join us next time. Nominations for the 2022 Bay of STEM Conference are now open. Do you have someone in your organization who goes above and beyond? Nominate them for a 2022 Bay of STEM Conference Award. Please visit www.ccgheroes.com for more details on our nomination process. All peer-reviewed nominations are due on August 31st, 2021. All Outstanding Achievement Award nominations are due on October 1st, 2021. Again, please visit www.ccgheroes.com for more details on our nomination process.